0: Would turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 11. Uh, As I mentioned last week, I was uh, planning to uh, share this message last week, and then I realized it was Family Sunday, and I just thought it would be better to do something different for Family Sunday than uh, retell the story of David and Bathsheba. Um, But that's what we're going to do this morning, and we're going to share, I'm going to share about. the story of David and Bathsheba, and I've called I've titled this message The Fall of a Great Leader. The Fall of a Great Leader. One of the things that I appreciate about the scriptures is that it doesn't hold back the flaws of the great men and women in the scripture that holds that are held up as examples of faith, as examples of those who walked in courage and character and, and godliness it it exposes not only those victories and those highlights that we are to learn from and imitate but it also gives us the nev- negative examples and the, the things about the, the those in the scripture that we should be warned from warned by and 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 learn from and so as i was preparing this message um, this week and, and and just thinking about um how can such a godly man do such ungodly things? Um, we got report of, of another leader who had, um, who's, has, has influence and has um, has charges brought against him. And it is heavy on my heart when I hear, when I've heard over the last 23 or 4 years since I've been a Christian, I've heard a number of, Stories about leaders that have fallen, even Christian leaders who are highly respected. Some of the one of the top apologists, uh, one one of a uh, uh, many megachurch pastors, and 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 we we hear these stories and our hearts are broken and we're grieved and we're baffled and we think, how could this happen? How could this happen amongst the Christians? Amongst Christians, and how could this happen? amongst leaders by leaders that are so respected and many people's faith is shaken and people are are disturbed and they question god what, where are you are you real in times like this when we when we see leaders that fall leaders that we may respect and and have learned from over the years and uh, one of the things that I think is important when we see that is we should be reminded of the nature of humanity, that we are all sinners, right, in need of a Savior. And there's one Savior, and we have a Savior who is perfect and unchanging. He is, yet, he is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and as I've said throughout this series in First and 2 Samuel, this story of 1 and Second Samuel is pointing us forward to a greater king who would come, who wouldn't commit the sins and the flaws that we have seen in, in this book with Saul and with David. And we're about to see. So in the first half of, of, uh, of 1 Samuel and Second Samuel, we see David's triumphs. We see victory. We see David in some of his best moments as we read through 1 Samuel when when he's courageously facing Goliath when none of the other soldiers are willing to step up to the plate. Or when, when he held back vengeance against Saul who was seeking to take his life. And he didn't, he didn't dis, disrespect his authority and, and try to overtake him. We, we, see, uh, we saw a couple weeks ago where David welcomed, he was faithful to his commitment to Jonathan and Saul. And he welcomed Mephibosheth into his house rather than killing him. All right, we saw the kindness of David, the kindness of God being expressed through David. We've seen David do some righteous things some godly things. We we see a man who was walking with God and who, who is characterized as a man after God's own heart according to God's perspective. But here we see something that's out of character of David. We see something that's different. We see his fall. We see that he, in a moment of prosperity, he was tempted with sin. In a moment of ease, he was tempted with sin, and he fell into it. So if you have your Bibles, um, let's turn there to 2 Samuel chapter 11, starting in verse 1. Father, as we open your word, would you open the eyes of our hearts to see wonderful things in your word. Help us to take seriously sin. Help us to take you seriously to fear you and depart from evil and help us to cling to Jesus and abide in Jesus as it was already stated. Teach us your way of faithfulness and truth in the inward parts of us. Teach us your way of love and holiness and righteousness. Lead us in the right path pass of righteousness we pray for your namesake in Jesus name we pray amen all right here we go we're going to read through chapter 11 and we'll see if we have time to get into chapter 12 here second samuel chapter 11 starting in verse 1 in the spring of the year the time when kings go out to battle david sent joab and his servants with him and all of israel And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Elam? the wife of Uriah the Hittite. So David sent messengers and took her. And she came to him, and he lay with her. And now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. And when Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. And then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went up from the house of the king's, went out of the king's house, and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. And when they, took, when they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house. David said to Uriah, have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths. And my Lord Joab, the servants of my Lord are camping in the open field. Shall I go to my house and eat and drink and lie with my wife as you live? And as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. And then David said, to Uriah, remain here today also and tomorrow, and I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next, and David invited him. And he ate in, the presence, in his presence and drank, and he made him drunk. And in the evening, he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to the house. And in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab, and he sent it by the hand of Uriah. And in the letter, he wrote, And then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting and he instructed the messenger, when you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the king's anger arises and if he says to you, why did you go near to the city and fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jeroboam, Did Did not a woman cast an upper milestone from uh, on him from the wall, so that he died at Thebes. Why did you go so near to the wall? And they shall say, and they, you shall say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is also dead. And so the messengers went. And they came and told David all that Joab had sent him. Uh, to tell and the messenger said to David the men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate then the archers shot at your servants from the wall and some of the king's servants are dead and your servant Uriah the Hittite is also dead so David said to the messenger thus shall you say to Joab do not let this matter displease you for the sword devours one now one And now another, strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and encourage him. And when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house. And she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Here's our big idea this morning. David was a great leader. He was a great leader according to the scriptures and what we learn about him from the scriptures. He was a great leader, but he also was one who committed great sins before God and he tried to conceal his sin, making matters worse. His failure is a warning to us and his repentance is an example for us. To imitate and so here here here's how we're gonna look at this section of scripture David committed great sin before the Lord David concealed his sin before God David was confronted in his sin by Nathan and David had consequences from his sin though he did find forgiveness so let's look at what happened. Why, why did such a godly man fall into such a terrible trap and, 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 and find himself in deceit and find himself covering up his sins? I think there's a, a hint here of, of what, one of the things that could have been happening at the very beginning. It says, first of all, in the spring of the year, the time when the kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him in all of Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, But David remained at Jerusalem. The text here seems to suggest that David was in the wrong place at the wrong time and not doing what he should have been doing. This is called idleness. He had leisure. He had some time on his hands. Now we've already seen David back in chapter seven have some time on his hands. He finally got rest from his enemies and he went through a season where it was so difficult where he was running from his life and God finally gave him some rest and David was able to kind of dream a little bit about how he can serve the Lord and build a house for the Lord. And worship God and honor God and provide a space for others to connect with God. Here, we, we see that David was taking it easy and perhaps he had a little too much free time and he wasn't doing what he was supposed to be doing. It's been said that an idle mind is the devil's workshop. Uh, I know as a, as a parent, we know as parents that it's important to keep our children occupied. Otherwise, if they have too much free time on their hands, they may get into mis- mischievous activities. Um, and so we want to set healthy boundaries for our children and help direct them towards good activities. Warren Wiersbe says this. He says that idleness isn't just the absence of activity. For all of us need regular rest. Idleness is also the act, is activity to no purpose. You see, we, we're, we're designed by God to need rest. We are designed by God to take a rest. We, every night we, we get sleep, our body needs it. Every week we're to have a day that we pull back from rest and we take it easy, right? But we're also designed for work. We're, we're designed to be productive with our lives and to do something that's meaningful, okay? And here, David was, was the king at the time, and, and David was was not with his with his soldiers as as the text uh, hinted that he that he should have been. He was taking it easy, enjoying. David the warrior had become David the vacationer, if you will. As one author writes, and so another another guy named Samuel Johnson says that if you were idle, if you were idle, be not solitary. If you are solitary, be not idle. And so I think many times when we're, when we're not busy doing what God's called us to do, and we're isolated, we open ourselves up. We become vulnerable to temptations. And so the next thing that we see here is we see David's imagination engaged here in the process of him committing this sin. So he's hanging out, taking it easy on the roof. And by the way, he had... Um, uh, it was common for monarchs to to have uh, porches that were high above and there was an overlook and they could look out. And so he was chilling on the porch, looking out, taking it easy. And he stumbled upon something. It happened a late, late one afternoon when David arose from his couches. He was walking on the roof of the king's house and he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. Now here was the, the moment of temptation. Here was the point. What's he going to do with this? You know, sometimes thoughts are presented to us and images come before our eyes and in that moment we have to decide what are we going to do with the temptation that's presented to us? Martin Luther said that we, can, um, we can't stop birds from flying over our head but we can stop them from making a nest on our head. Right? And so David was in this moment and he sees a beautiful woman bathing and his imagination probably started to to linger over this. Right? This is maybe, this is like like, uh, in our day where someone might be scrolling on a screen, looking on a screen through social media, or looking, scrolling the web at, at, at a time of just taking it easy, and then all of a sudden, images pop up on the screen. What are you gonna do in that moment, men? When images pop up on a screen that are forbidden for you to look at. And so David was faced with that temptation in that moment. And this is statistically, this is a this is a, a major struggle for many men. Okay? And, and whenever we have men's gatherings, this is something we try to talk about and exhort our men in uh, to be men who are consecrated to God, who, who are uh, gazing upon the beauty of God and not looking up upon that which is forbidden for them to reflect on and look upon. And so we see his imagination wandering. Jesus said this about lust and adultery. He said, I say to you, everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. He's already committed adultery with her in his heart. James gives us um, a description of this process of how sin works and how it traps and and, and, uh, entangles a person. He says that, let no one say when he's tempted, I'm being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each one is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. And then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, it gives birth to death. And so we see David presented with temptation he didn't flee. He didn't run. He didn't resist. He gave in to the gravitational pull of lust. And he found himself trapped trying to fix a big mess that he created that only got worse and worse and worse. And more and more people were hurt by it. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote a book called Temptation. And he says this He says, In our members, there is a a slumbering inclination toward desire, which is both sudden and fierce with irresistible power. Desire ceases mastery of the flesh. All at once a secret smoldering fire is kindled. The flesh burns and is in flames. It makes no difference whether it's a sexual desire or an ambition or vanity or desire for revenge or love or fame or power or greed or for money. At this moment, God is quite unreal to us. He loses all reality and only desire for the creature is real. The only reality is the devil. Satan does not here fill us with hatred of God, but with forgetfulness of God. The lust that aroused envelops the mind and the will of man in the deepest darkness The powers of clear discrimination and of decision are taken from us. The questions present themselves as, is what the flesh desires really sin in this case? And is this really not permitted to me? Yes, expected of me now, here in my particular situation to appease desire. It is here that everything within me rises up against the word of God. Therefore, the Bible teaches us in times of temptation in the flesh, there is one command, flee. Flee fornication, flee idolatry, flee youthful lust, flee the lust of the world. There is no resistance to Satan in lust other than flight. Every struggle against lust in one's, one's own strength is doomed to failure. So what... Dietrich Bonhoeffer is saying that we must do what Joseph did when he was tempted sexually with Potiphar's wife. He fled. He ran. He took off. He did what the Apostle Paul said to do, flee youthful lust and pursue righteousness. And so we see as David gives in to this temptation, it says that he sent for Bathsheba. And notice this, because this is used a couple different times. This is important to note here, because we'll see it used in a different way later on. David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. David sent word to Joab, said, send me Uriah the Hittite. And, And we see, in this moment, we see David using his authority as king in abusive, unjust ways. This was an abuse of power. This was unrighteous. This was ungodly. This was something that displeased the Lord. And and just prior, uh, in in chapter 10, we saw that David was serving Israel. He was was serving Israel and, and administered justice and equity in Israel. We see him doing some great things before, but here he is violating his authority. He's violating the command of God, and even the king himself is not above God's commands. He's not above God's authority, and so he sends for Bathsheba, and then he indulges. So he's his, his, his idle. His, his imagination wanders, and then he indulges in sexual immorality. Effie Meyer says this, he says, one brief spell of passionate indulgence and then his character blasted irretrievably. His peace vanished. The foundations of his kingdom imperiled. The Lord displeased and great occasion given to his enemies to blaspheme. Now notice this though. In every temptation, the Bible tells us that God presents us a way of escape. Okay, let no one, no one say when they're tempted, they're tempted by God. No temptation is overtaken you except which is common to man. And every single temptation, God makes a way out. And here was a, a way out, I think. Because when David inquired about Bathsheba, okay, the response from one person was, he, it says David sent and inquired about uh, the woman. And one said, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Elam? the wife of Uriah the Hittite. See, there's a barrier that's being put up. There's, there's a check that should have been heeded in that moment. This woman is somebody's daughter. This woman is somebody's wife, and he's, she's not your wife, David, right? David knew the command, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife. David knew the command, you shall not commit adultery. And this was a barrier. This was this was intended here, I think, as, as a check, as a check for David to take the way of escape. Don't give in to it, David. And God sends us barriers, right? He gives us checks. He gives us warnings. He gives us way of, ways of escape, so that in every time we're tempted, he's, there's a way out. So we can't say, "Well, just the devil made me do it." God has provided a way out. His grace empowers us to live holy lives that honor him. And yet David just transgresses. He proceeds. He moves forward. And notice this was in a time of David's life, not when he was going through a lot of trials and hardships. This was a time in his life when he was prospering, when he had all that he needed and more, way more. And that was a part of the rebuke that came later on. Look at all that God has given you, David, and yet it, it, you, you could have asked if you, there was something you wanted. You could have asked, and and, and, and yet you despise the word of the Lord. And so David, now one of the things that baffles me is that somebody so godly could do such evil, Right? Now, I think we would, we're even more surprised when we don't understand the nature of humanity. As David describes in his prayer of repentance, he says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. You see, David acknowledged in his prayer of repentance that he was born as a sinner, with an inclination towards sin. as the Apostle Paul said in Ephesians chapter 2, that we have this desire, we're born with this nature, this propensity towards sin and so we need to be born again we need a power outside of us to help us and christianity provides that the gospel provides that for us so what was going on here i think it's important to note that there were some even before david got to this moment there were some other issues there when somebody falls into a sin like this it's not just that one moment What we see here in Deuteronomy chapter 17, the law of Moses forbidden that kings would accumulate wives and accumulate horses, right? There were some checks and balances on those who are in power governmentally, right? And God just set it up that way in the law. Power, those in authority need checks and balances, need accountability. And God's law had that. And God's people were to, uh, to, to give that, and Nathan was a part of giving that to, to, to David. But he acquired wives. It says in, in 2 Samuel chapter, uh, 5, 13, David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem. He took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem. And so his heart, his heart in that moment was, was drawn towards another woman's, another man's wife that didn't belong to to him. Charles Swindoll says this as he writes about David's failure in in the, the issue here. He says that the simple fact is that the passion of sex is not satisfied by a full harem of women. It is increased. Having many women does not reduce a man's libido. It excites it. It stimulates it. David, being a man with a strong sexual appetite, mistakenly thought, to satisfy it, I will have more women. Thus, when he became the king, he added to the harem. But his drive only increased. One of the lies of our secular society is that if you just satisfy this drive, then then it will be abated. And so David committed the sin, he indulged his flesh, And then he tried to conceal it. He tried to cover it up. And this is natural. This is what humanity has done all the way back to the garden, Adam and Eve. When they sinned against God, they disobeyed God's command. They tried to cover their shame and their nakedness up by making fig leaves and hiding from God. This is what our tendency is to do. And David was trying to fix it here himself. He tried to have Uriah sleep with his wife. And, and so that it would, it would be thought that that's Uriah's baby when it wasn't. He, was trying to, he tried to get him drunk. And Uriah, I'm, I'm sure David must have felt really convicted and really bad when Uriah wasn't giving in to this plan and he was showing himself to be more honorable than the king. And he wouldn't even go home and, and be with his wife because there were other soldiers on the battlefield. There was just this loyalty there. There's this, this contrast of, here's somebody who's loyal. And so David tried to cover it up. And in, in Psalm 32 and Psalm 51, these are psalms that relate to uh, this passage and, and David's response to this experience. David describes this time. And some theologians think that it, this was up to like six, six months to a year before David repented. And so there were probably not a lot of worship songs that were written during that time of David's life. His abiding in the Lord and connection and communion with God was probably significantly quenched, right? He, he, he seems to be playing the hypocrite here and, 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 and concealing. And this is how he describes that time. He says, for when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, and my strength was dried up as the heat of summer. Selah, he's describing the miserable experience of living with concealed sin, trying to fix it ourselves. It never works. We're not made to do it. We can't fix it ourselves. There's a better solution. There's a better solution than to keep trying to cover it up, trying to conceal it. The solution is confession repentance at some point in here david could have repented he could acknowledge he could have went confessed to the lord and confessed to uriah and confessed to to nathan say i've sinned i've done wrong but his sin increases from adultery to murder of one of his 30 mighty men honorable men that were on the front lines fighting for him and that's what sin does, It just it's like a snowball, it just increases and it affects, it, 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 it takes us further than we want to go, keeps us longer than we want to stay, and makes us pay more than we want to pay. In David's prayer of repentance in Psalm 51, he says, I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Think of the misery he must have felt during this season, the guilt he must have felt, the isolation, the disconnection, the relational breakdown the lack of connection with god and with others during this time of concealing his sin proverbs 28:13 says he who conceals his sin will not prosper but he who confesses and forsakes his sin will find mercy that's good news for us that was good news for david had he found it had he done that sooner and I think we want, as, as the people of God, we want to make it our aim, when we find ourselves giving in to sin, to repent sooner than later. To minimize the damaging effects of the relationships. And the sin in our life. It says that this thing displeased the Lord. 2 Samuel 11, verse 27. And when the morning was over, David sent Uh, sent and brought her to his house and she became his wife and bore him a son but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord godly people can do ungodly things and displease God we can displease God with our actions and we want to be those who make it our aim to please God to honor him in everything to be quick to confess and acknowledge what we've done. And here at City Church, we, because we believe the gospel of Jesus Christ that with God there is forgiveness, we want to run to, and we are committed to running to God in repentance and confessing our sin and acknowledging our sins, so that we can be met with mercy and grace and find freedom and healing and restoration. As I've said, that God forgives sins, not excuses. And so we need to acknowledge those before him. And so what we see next is we see that God sent Nathan to David. The Lord sent Nathan to David. God sent a man to confront him. Somebody who would blow the whistle and and say, you can't do this, David. Nathan was a prophet. And he spoke the word of the Lord to David, and I'm not going to read the whole, the whole section here, but I'm going to sum it up. The Lord sent uh, Nathan to David, and he came, and, and he said to him, he told him a story. He told him a story of a man who, well, I'll go ahead and read it. There was a man who had two men, there were two men in a certain city, one rich and the other poor, and the rich man had very many flocks and herds, and the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up and it grew up with him and his children and he used to eat of, the, of his morsel and drank his cup and lie in his arms and it was like a daughter to him. Now there was a traveler to the rich man and he was unwilling to take one of his own uh, flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. And he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him and then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die and he shall restore the lamb fourfold because, this, because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Now remember, David was a shepherd. So Nathan the prophet had prepared skillfully a story that would get right to the heart of David, right to the issue of his sin and illustrate for him how unjust and how unrighteous and how ungodly this act was. David doesn't realize that he's being being set up for the confrontation here. David gets mad. He gets mad. Who is this guy who thinks he could just take somebody else's lamb? Right? And so Nathan said to David, you are the man. You're looking at him. You're looking at him. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel. I delivered you out of the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if it were too little, I I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife to be your wife, and you killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me, and you have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against uh, you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before the eyes and give before your eyes and give them to your neighbor and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun for you did it secretly but I will do this thing before all Israel before the sun before all Israel and before the sun and David said to Nathan I have sinned against the Lord and Nathan said to David the Lord has put away your sin you shall not die nevertheless because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord the child who is born to you shall die Then Nathan went to his house and the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David and he became sick. And so we see David had committed great sin. David had concealed his sin and now he was confronted in his sin by a godly man that was sent by God to address the issue. The Lord sent Nathan to David the Lord confronted him and said, "You can't do this." The Lord, uh, through through Nathan, uh, gave gave him this story of this lamb that was unjustly taken, and so David was confronted. He was convicted, and this was risky for Nathan. Nathan could have been killed. the The response could have been, "Off with his head," right? And it wasn't. Or the response could have been, "He could have. He could have." Um, you know, gaslit him. He could have said, you're crazy, man. I didn't do that. I'm not, I didn't do anything wrong. He could have denied it. But then David confessed his sin to the Lord. He responded instead of continuing to conceal and cover up, shift, blame shift, he acknowledged, I have sinned against the Lord. Now we've seen this before with Saul. Saul has acknowledged his sin before God or be- before samuel the prophet right he had a confession that didn't accompany repentance but what's different here with david was there was confession with genuine repentance david had sinned greatly but his sin ultimately is not what defines his life when we read his story and we read the psalms we don't lump him in there with the bad guys, even though he, was, he did some terrible things. We consider him a godly, righteous leader, a great leader, who sinned greatly and repented. He found mercy, and he found forgiveness when he turned to the Lord. Now, it's also important to note that David still had consequences the face for his sin. Though he did find forgiveness, though he did find mercy, God forgave his sin. God was merciful to him. When you read the rest of the book of 2 Samuel, you will see trouble in his family, exactly what Nathan is saying would happen. Trouble that would come to his family. The baby that him and Bathsheba had out of wedlock died. There was turmoil in his family. There was rape amongst his children. There was murder amongst his children. Galatians chapter six says that, do not be deceived, God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. For one who sows to the flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And so yes, there is forgiveness and mercy with God. If you're here today and and maybe you're in a place, you feel like you're in a place like David, guilty and condemned because of your sin, in need of mercy, I want you to know that there's hope for you. There's hope for forgiveness. There's hope for freedom. There's hope for restoration for you. You can be forgiven and you can be free. You don't have to despair and stay in your sin and keep concealing it and covering up and trying to fix it yourself because you can't. You need a savior and that's the whole point in Jesus coming to die for our sins on the cross because there's a greater king who would come and not misuse his power to abuse others and take whatever he wants. But he came to serve with that power and that authority. He came to love with that power and authority. He came to honor his father with that power and authority and do good to people. And this is what godly leaders are supposed to do. And even the best of godly leaders will let us down. I'll let you down. I'm not Jesus. (laughs) <laughs> your, those of you who are married your spouse will let you down it doesn't take long to be married before you experience that right uh, others will let you down there's only one savior who we are to direct our hope and our trust ultimately in and that is Jesus he's the king He is the perfect king and so let me just highlight a couple points of application here First of all, be aware of despising God's word and excusing yourself from living under the authority of it. Apparently, this is what what Nathan says was, was the problem here. He says, why did you despise the word of the Lord? You see, even the king is under authority. David knew that. But he seemed to forget. He seemed to forget have amnesia, if you will, or forget about the reality that God sees everything, or at least it wasn't on the forefront of his mind. And so be aware of despising God's word and excusing yourself from living under the authority of it. Nobody is above the authority of God's word. Right? And the, the, when, when we're confronted with, with practices with ideas and practices that don't line up with God's word, we need to bring, we need to repent. We need to change our mind. We need to, we need to change our direction and, and, and submit to the authority of God's word and not despise it. I think we can, we can despise God's word, the authority of God's word in our lives in more than one way. One, we can just, we can minimize it and challenge it, whether it's true whether it applies to us whether it's true or we can think well that 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 applies to others but not to me others need to do this but not me and none of us none of us are are exempt from having uh from submitting to the authority of god's word and so another, another point of application here is be wise by recognizing and avoiding situations that may present temptation. It would have been wise for David not to be there at that time. Probably much better to be with his soldiers on the battlefield. Not there. And there are certain situations that, that we need to recognize when we're vulnerable to temptation and we need to just avoid them. You know, like if, if alcoholism was, was a struggle for you, then, then you may not need to go to the bar, right? And be around a bunch of drinking if that's a temptation, right? If, if pornography is an issue for you, then you may not need to be, uh, a, you know, scrolling the internet, Late in the night or when you're tired or vulnerable, you may need to have some kind of boundaries and accountability there to help you so that you're not gazing upon those things which are forbidden for you to look at and desire. And so be wise in recognizing and avoiding the situations. Or it may, it may be people that you, that you need to distance yourself from because when you get around them, they draw you in. There's that gravitational pull Towards those practices that are unhealthy. The other thing is avoid the assumption that you're immune to the sins that others fall into. Okay? It's easy when we read a story like this about David to immediately be like, that would never be me. I would never do that. But but what the, the Bible teaches us, it teaches us one that we all have this sinful nature and this tendency towards sin, right? And it teaches us that temptation is common to man, to mankind. No temptation has overtaken you except that which is common to man. And you get under the right circumstances in the right situation, disappointments, discouragement, pain, doubts, and you may be vulnerable to do things that you would have never thought that you would do. And so what the scripture tells us to do as we look at these examples in first corinthians chapter 10 it says to him who thinks he stands take heed lest you fall right instead of like man i'm good right because we may be surprised like peter was surprised when when he denied jesus three times He's like, I'll go, I'll go all the way for you. And Peter fell significantly. Significantly, He, he failed in, in, in sticking it out with Jesus as he thought he would all the way to the cross. Jesus knew it, by the way. Jesus wasn't surprised by it. Jesus actually told Peter that that would happen. He said, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat, but I've prayed for you that your faith should not fail. When you return, strengthen the brethren. But Peter was broken. He was devastated. He seemed surprised by his failure when he committed it. He learned about God's grace and the need to depend upon God's grace to stand. God's strength to stand. We don't stand in our own strength. We stand in the grace of God. The strength that he provides. The other thing is fight sin at the heart level by redirecting your thoughts towards what's right, true, and confessing the entertainment of sinful thoughts as sin. See, we don't just wait till we actually carry out the action of some sin, whether it's adultery or some kind of malicious act towards somebody. It's sin before you actually carry out the action. It's sin when you're entertaining the thoughts in your heart, and you're imagining. You're letting those, those thoughts play in your mind. And we have to fight sin at the heart level, at the mind level, not just at the external level with what everyone else sees. Because God sees the heart. And we gotta address the heart issues and be proactive that when we do let thoughts linger longer when they're presented to us, and we let them linger in our minds, imagine in our hearts. We, we, that's sin and we need to confess it as sin. And deal with it at the root before it grows into something bigger in our lives. And renew our minds. Be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And lastly, we need to confess our sins to others and pray who can pray and help counsel us with god's word see first john 1 9 we confess our sins to god for forgiveness he forgives us if we confess our sins to him he forgives us and he cleanses us of all unrighteousness this is true it was read in our communion talk but sometimes we need to bring others into the fight with us confess our sins one to another and pray for one another so that we might be healed and free So that we can walk in freedom of those vices that have held us down and hindered us from walking in the holiness of God and the righteousness of God that he's called us to walk in. And because of the gospel of grace, you and I can move towards one another in this way and have the freedom to open up and say, I've done wrong. I need help. I need mercy. I need grace. And we can be for one another those conduits of God's mercy and grace and speak the gospel over one another and remind one another of who we are and what has been done for us and how we are to live. We need each other. We need the Lord and we need one another. We need to confess our sins one to another and pray for one another. If you all would stand with me. I'd like to close our time in praying from Psalm 51 together. One of the the treasures that we have in Scripture that resulted from this experience that David walked through is this beautiful prayer of repentance in Psalm 51. I've prayed this prayer many times. and I know many of you have as well. And I just want to pray this together. I want us to reflect in light of this story, in light of the response of David and the mercy of God and and what what went down in 2 Samuel 11 11 and 12, let's pray this together as our prayer to God and think about the truths that are stated here. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. so that you may be found justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being. You teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. with your willing spirit.